starting a series this morning called Welcome Home. We're going to do four weeks studying the church and the role of the church and what God has called the church to be. One of, there's a number of analogies in Scripture, but uh, one of the ones that comes up pretty consistently is, is the idea that we are the house of God or the household of God. So our thought for this series is that if we're welcome home, we should find rest in the house of God. And I don't know what kind of households you grew up in. I don't know what was there for you, but when you went away to college or moved out or um, even went on vacation and came back home, there's something about being home or being somewhere where you feel safe. It may not be your family's home, it might be someone else's home, but when you are there, you feel home. It could be a house, it could be um, just the city you grew up in, and whenever you return home, it just it feels nostalgic. It feels like home. We find rest there. I think for many of us, though, church is not that place. Gathering together sometimes doesn't feel restful. It feels guilt-ridden. It feels chaotic. Uh, it feels uh, almost suppressive, but it needs to feel like home. It should feel like a place where you can come breathe again, a place where you can be reminded of whose you are and who you are. And then when I go home to my mom and dad's house and they have pictures of me and of my sisters all over the place and photo albums and things my mom refuses to get rid of that still stay in our house, or in their house. It just reminds me of, of who I was, who I am, and who's, who I belong to. Sometimes it can settle our hearts or our, or our souls. That's what it feel like when you go home to your family's house. But for some of us, we come into church not as family, but as friends. And I remember, maybe you had a friend like this growing up where you loved to go to their house. My favorite uh, house to go to was a friend of mine who their pantry was always stocked with brand name snacks. Like at my house, we didn't have brand name snacks. We had the Sam's Choice and we had Dr. Thunder and uh, Mountain Lightning or whatever. And that, that, but my friend, man, it was packed full of little Debbies and Rice Krispie treats and real Cheez-Its and real goldfish, not the whales, but the goldfish. And uh, we loved going there because it just, it felt like home. It felt good to be there. And there will be people, maybe even this morning, people who come into our, our, our house, our church, our home who need to find rest and they don't get it at their house, but they can get it here. So we're going to do four weeks on, on how do we build a house of rest? How does the house of God become a place of rest for us? So we're going to study in Acts chapter 2 for the next four weeks. And then after that, we're going to start a series through the book of Ephesians that will take us all the way through until Christmas. We're just going to study the book of Ephesians together. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk about the apostles' teaching. We're going to talk about Scripture. Talk about we need to find rest through the teaching of God's Word. Um, I want to introduce to us two different concepts, experience and explanation. Uh, how many of you can dance? Any dancers? Anybody can dance here? Awesome. Me neither. Just one of us. Uh, yeah, dancing for me is one of those things I just can't figure out how to do. I, I think I'm too analytical. Uh, I could watch all the tutorials all day long, probably go to classes, but it's like I can't quite figure out how I'm going to do it. My junior year of high school, we had a school talent show, and me and a bunch of my friends decided we were going to do a dance number to Macho Man. We ripped our shirts off at the end, which is, I don't know why we did that, but that was part of our, our story. Uh, but dancing for me is that thing that I just, it's like I, I can't make everything work together. I grew up playing sports and ended up coaching um, baseball and, uh, and, and volleyball. And sports for me, again, I'm not the most naturally athletic. And so I really have to think about what I'm doing. I don't know if you have, you know people like this, that I'm not naturally athletic, but if I can figure it out, then, then I'll be fine. But the problem is when I start to teach my kids how to throw a ball. A lot of kids can just pick up a ball and just, they just, their bodies figure out how to throw it. But I have this problem of, I have to explain to them how to throw a ball. And then they look like, I mean, they don't look like they know what they're doing. 
And so they looked like robots and their arms were jerking all over the place. And I've made my oldest son just pretty obsessive over doing the right thing the right way. And it's a problem for me. But we have experience and then we have um, explanations. Experience is when we actually participate in something. And then there's explanations of how to explain that experience. We see it a lot in Scripture. We see people have experience with God, and then we see uh, teachers come and explain what it is that they just experienced. It's literally how Scripture works. We experience God, then we are explained as to what just happened. The problem is, when you have explanation, but you don't have experience, it leads to elitism. Elitism. So maybe you've played sports, and you've been around the coach who um, acts like he is the best athlete in the world and tries to tell you how to do things all the time. And then he goes to show you and you realize he has no idea what he's actually doing. Uh, as a parent, that's me constantly. I try to tell my kids what to do and then I try to do it and I just, I don't know what I'm doing. And in the church, we have um, churches that are devoted to explaining, to teaching, to doctrine, but there's no experience of God. And what happens is, they become elitist in their mind. They know everything, we know everything, but we've never actually experienced what it is that we're talking about. You have ex explanation with no experience. It leads to an elitism, an arrogance, a pride. On the other hand, if you have experience but no explanation, it leads to exhaustion. If you've ever um, had an experience in your life that you loved, maybe it was it happens a lot, a lot of times around Christmas. And you have a Christmas experience. It's one year in Christmas and everything is as it should be. It's a Hallmark movie and, uh, and it's just everything is as it should be. And somebody falls in love with a stranger because they move back into town. And it's just, it's everything that you ever dreamed of for Christmas. And so you think next year, I'm going to recreate that experience. What happens when we create experiences and always go from experience to experience without any teaching or understanding, we become exhausted. And like there are churches who are elitist because they have all the explanation but zero experience. We have churches that are exhausted because they're all experience and no explanation. They have grown adept at creating experiences, but in order to get people to come back the next week or to the next event, they have to create another experience and it just gets exhausting. And maybe you are, your personality is driven from experience to experience and you jump from one high, one adrenaline rush to the next. And, and in the meantime, you're growing exhausted because you have to chase the next high, the next experience, the next rush, and you become exhausted. But I believe that scripture we're gonna learn here this morning, scripture teaches us that we, when we combine experience and explanation, we get expansion, we get growth. So we study the Word of God this morning and we study in Acts chapter 2. It's my heart for our church that we be a church of both experience and explanation. The Word of God is primary to our understanding of the world and of, of God. But without the experience of God, we're just people with a lot of head knowledge and no love in our hearts for the Lord and for people. Well, as we 40 scripture, you will see it laid over over and over and over again, these two things. Let's go to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Then I'm going to Quentin Tarantino it. So Quentin Tarantino has these movies where you start at the end, and then there's these pieces that build it back, so then the end makes sense again. So we're going to start at 42, then we're going to go back to the beginning of Acts chapter, Acts chapter 2. Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, 
and the prayers. So this is the early church in Acts chapter 2. Jesus has come to earth, is born as a baby, begins his ministry at 30 years old, 33 and a half years old or so. He is crucified. Three days later, he raises from the dead. 40 days later, he ascends into heaven, leaving his disciples staring up into the sky. But before he ascends, he tells them, hey, stay here in Jerusalem and wait for the power of God, for power to clothe you from on high or for the spirit to come. And then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is what he tells them. Acts chapter one, Jesus ascends. Acts chapter two, we'll look at in a, in a little bit. The Holy Spirit descends and comes down. And here we find the early church. The first Christian church is birthed in a city of Jerusalem. And this is what they devote themselves to, to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and their prayers. Four things, these four prongs we're going to study over the of four weeks, because I, if we want to be the church that God has called us to be, we must follow the example of the first church that God set in motion. So let's look at a few words here. First is this idea of devoted. Uh, the idea of devotion is to be continually committed or continually steadfastly committed to something or someone. It's what it means to be devoted. Now, in, in the original language, this is written in, in Greek. This is in the imperfect tense, which means what Luke is saying here in Acts is that the early church was continually, was continuing to be continually committed to the apostles' teaching. It's, a, in a, it's like a decision they make daily and constantly to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. Well, then the question is, well, then who are the apostles? Generically speaking, apostles are anyone sent with a mission from a leader or sent with a mission from God. So think of a sheriff and his deputy. A deputy is then sent with a mission from, from the sheriff. He's given the authority of the sheriff to go and fulfill this mission. That's what generically an apostle is. Speaking primarily, specifically here, the apostles are the 12 disciples who followed Jesus, except you've got one named Judas who denied Jesus or betrayed Jesus and ended up then committing suicide. He's been replaced with a man named Matthias in Acts chapter 1. Then there's also a man by the name of Paul who is an apostle as well, because the distinction of these types of apostles are someone who has physically seen the risen mission and who has been called physically by Jesus uh, to begin the mission of the church in the world. So it's these 13 men, 11 apostles, Matthias, and then adding Paul. And then finally, this idea of teaching is the idea of doctrine. And already you're bored because I've given you some doctrine. And doctrine just feels boring. I don't know if you play board games at your house. We grew up playing board games and card games. And every family has that one person who loves the rules of the game. Does everybody have that person in their family? Are you that person? Yeah. You're the person who, when you get out Monopoly, you get the rules out to make sure everyone knows this is how you play this 17-hour game called Monopoly. Like, it's not long enough. We got to tell you exactly how to play it. Or it's Uno, and you have to know when I put a draw two down, if you put another draw two, the next person has to draw four this person who loves the rules, who loves the doctrine of board games. I am that person in our family and our oldest son has, has graciously inherited that trait from me. But what I'm learning is people don't like playing board games with me. They just don't enjoy it. They just want to make up their own rules, which I think is sinful, but they, they do anyway. Uh, but this idea of doctrine, for many of us, that's what we associate church doctrine with. And so we feel bored and stifled when we start talking about church doctrine. And it's why, in fact, many churches have drifted away from doctrine because it feels so stifling and so boring. But doctrine is the teaching. It is the explanation of the experiences of God. 
I read as I was studying the past few weeks, one commentator says, anytime the doctrine becomes boring, we should repent of that sin. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. And doctrine is not just information. They didn't Google something or watch a tutorial. It's an explanation or an interpretation of information. There is so much information in our world today, literally at our fingertips, in your pockets right now, as you're holding it, is more information than anyone has ever had in their mind in the history of the world. Information for us is not the problem. If you want to know what a word means in the Bible or who wrote this book or at what, you know, what is the time frame that the first temple was constructed, you can look all of that up. Information for us is not the problem, but doctrine is our issue, what we're missing. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching. But notice again, they're not devoted simply to the apostles. These are men not devoted to the apostles. They're not devoted to the apostles' miracles and their signs and wonders. They're not even devoted to their personality or their creativity. They're not devoted to their morality. They're not devoted to their opinions or their political party. They're not even devoted to the apostles' leadership style. The early church is first to the doctrine of the apostles, the doctrine of these first messengers and deputies who began the church of God. So then the question is, what is the apostles' doctrine? What is their teaching, right? If we're going to be devoted to something, we need to know what we are devoted to. So let's go back in Acts chapter 2. Let's go to verse 14. We're going to study a couple portions here. Peter gives a brilliant sermon. This is the first sermon. It's evangelistic. Thousands of people come to know Jesus after the sermon. But pay attention to his doctrine in Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, the apostles in the upper room, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. So people have all traveled to Jerusalem. They're the men of Judea and now just the ones in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. As a pastor, I'm obligated to make this joke. Uh, There were people gathered in Jerusalem. Then the Holy Spirit comes and these apostles begin speaking in other languages. And the cry is made from the crowd, these men are drunk. And Peter says, listen, it's only nine in the morning. Later in the day, they might be drunk. But right now, they are not drunk. They are not drunk. But then he says this in verse 16. So now he's preaching this sermon and he says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Not our Joel, but God's Joel in the Old Testament. A prophet, not a... So what we're learning quickly is that the apostles' teaching is not a trend, it's not fluid, but it's built on the shoulders of the prophets who have come before. God set up teaching and doctrine in such a way that it would first flow through the prophets. And from the prophets would flow to a man named Jesus, the Son of God, God in flesh. And from Jesus, it would flow to the apostles who began the early church. And then like it or not, from the apostles in Scripture, then the Word of God, the doctrine, the theology, then flows uh, to the pastors of our churches. I carry a weight of teaching that has been set in motion thousands of years ago. The apostles did not have the freedom to twist the words of the prophets. Jesus did not have the, the freedom to twist the words of the prophets. I don't have the freedom to twist the words of the prophet, of the prophets or Jesus or the apostles. 
The apostles' teaching, what we learn first is that it's built on the shoulders of those who had come before. And then continue reading. Let's go down into verse 22. I don't have time for the whole sermon. Then verse 22. Peter again says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your marriage, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Uh, This is not the way to grow a church. These are not sermons that actually encourage people to come to church when Peter says, you are all murderers, you've killed the Son of God. But he does. And then he says in verse 24, but God raised him up, uh, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So we know it's built on the prophet's And then it's built on the person and finished work of Jesus. This is the apostles' teaching. Built on the Old Testament prophets and then the person and work of Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, fully God in flesh, who lived a sinless life and gave the perfect sacrifice, was crucified and then rose again, defeating sin and death. As Peter says, he loosed the pangs of death. He destroyed the power of death built on the prophets, the gospel of Jesus, and then verse 25, and then he says, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. He goes back to an Old Testament source of David. But in this sermon, Peter makes the point for the Jewish audience that Jesus is not David. He's better than David, the son of God. So when we think about the apostles' teaching, I think we first have to, have to realize it's worked on Old Testament teaching. It's built on doctrine of the prophets and built on the gospel, the finished work of Jesus. If those two things do not exist or if they are twisted or things are added to it, that is not gospel-centered apostles' teaching. That is not what the church is built on. But it's interesting, this is a man named Peter. So Peter was one of the early apostles. He's one of the 12 disciples called by Jesus to follow him. And when he is called, he is a fisherman. But Peter is a Hebrew young man. He's a Jew. And to be a fisherman tells us something about Peter, that Peter is probably in the family business of fishing. Every Jewish boy from almost the moment they are born, but as soon as they're able to understand and read and write, they are taught the Jewish Torah. They are taught the Old Testament specifically taught the first five books of the Old Testament. They're taught it. They are taught to memorize it, to quote it. They're given a rabbi that would teach them in in some kind of, in a Jewish school called a Talmud, and they would learn this this, um, story of God from the Old Testament. Now, at the age of 13 or so, we see the bar mitzvah, right, is what happens. But in Jewish, in Hebrew, for Hebrew in these times, when a, a boy would reach the age of 13, a rabbi had to decide about that boy is he good enough to continue studying the Jewish scripture or has he essentially flunked out to go back to his family business? So what we know about Peter is that at the age of 12 or 13, he was told by a teacher, by a a religious theologian, a rabbi, that he was not good enough to continue, that he should just go back to fishing. This is who Peter is. Peter is not the best of the best. He's not the cream of the crop. He hasn't gone to Yale or Harvard or Cambridge. He's not schooled theologically. But then in this passage, it's like Peter begins saying things like, as out of the mouth of the prophet Joel, and as concerning things said by David, things that a good Hebrew studier would have known, but not a fisherman. 
And in fact, as Peter is following Jesus for three and a half years, walking with him every day, being taught by the manifest presence of God, the fully God, son of God, Jesus, as Peter's being taught by him, he still can't put all the pieces together, which should be encouraging to you and to me. That even if, even if you walked with Jesus day by day, you probably still wouldn't understand the Bible. Peter just could not figure it all out. He wasn't good enough at 13. And then at this point, following Jesus, he still can't quite figure it out. We also know that Peter is terribly insecure. He's desperate for the affirmation and attention of leadership. It's why he's the first to speak when Jesus asks the question. He's the first to raise his hand. He's the first to jump out of the boat and try to walk on water. He's the first to jump out of the boat and swim to Jesus. He is desperate for the affirmation of those around him. So desperate, in fact, that he tells Jesus that he would never, Peter would never let Jesus suffer and die, that he would stand before him and would never let anyone touch him. And Jesus says, you're actually going to deny me three times tonight. And Peter is so insecure, so desperate for affirmation that he does deny the son of God who he says he believes in. And he denies him to probably a 13 or 14 year old teenage servant girl who puts videos on TikTok. This is who he is afraid. He's so terribly insecure that even this little girl shames him into denying the Son of God. He's unlearned, he's insecure, desperate for attention. And again, last recollection of Peter, he has denied Jesus three times. So what has changed for Peter? Because he has gone from uh, the man who wasn't good enough at 13 to not being able to put things together, even walking with Jesus, to now giving the first sermon of the church in which he calls back to Old Testament prophets and clearly lays out the power of the gospel. And in fact, stands securely and boldly and says, you know, the man that I denied, you killed him. And he calls them lawless men. 13-year-old girls, lawless men he stands before. So what changed for Peter? What happened for him that he understands the prophets, he understands scripture, and he understands the gospel? What changed for him? I think two things. One, he repented and was forgiven by Jesus. In John chapter 21, he meets Jesus on the seashore, and, and he has this moment of restoration. But I think as powerfully as what happens here in Acts chapter two. Let's go to verse one of Acts chapter two. When the day of Pentecost arrived. So Pentecost is a, a Jewish festival. It's a feast celebrating the first fruits of the harvest. And it would be 50 days after Passover. Penta meaning 50. It's the 50 day festival after Passover. And what's brilliant about the way that God works and scripture is written is that Jesus was killed at the Passover festival. And then 50 days later comes what's called Pentecost or the Feast of First Fruits. And they're all gathered together in one place. And in verse two, there suddenly comes a mighty rushing wind, a sound from heaven, like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided or distributed tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Jesus was crucified on Passover. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost or the Feast of First Fruits. So Peter, what's different for Peter? Is that Peter has been restored by Jesus and he's been filled with the Holy Spirit. Now I know in a church like ours, 
uh, historically Baptists, when I say filled with the Holy Spirit, you start to get a little itchy. You start to sweat a little bit. Uh, it just doesn't feel right. Are we gonna start waving flags and handling snakes? And probably not. But there's this moment, and as you look through Scripture, where the Spirit opens our eyes to understand the things of God. It's so significant what happens here for Peter that the very Spirit of God now dwells in Peter. And what is pushed out is insecurity. What is given to him is boldness. What is, what is pushed out is the uh, ignorance of not being able to understand Scripture. And what is filled is these new eyes to see what God is up to and what he has been up to. Peter was changed by an experience with the Holy Spirit. The danger for us as a church, and as we study this and we see the apostles teaching, we want to be a church that's devoted to Scripture is that I could stand up here and say, so here's what we're going to do. You got a reading plan. And so for 30 days, we're going to study scripture together. And for some of us, the ones of us who love monopoly rules, that might work for us. But if we're being honest, in 60 days, 75 days, three months, we're back where we started. We don't understand scripture. It's too overwhelming. It doesn't make sense. I feel guilty when I'm not reading it, so I try to catch up. The call for us to be devoted to the apostles' teaching for us is going to start here with an experience with the Holy Spirit. The triune God, the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit opens our eyes to understand Scripture. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says that we as Christians, we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. There is a spirit of the world, but that spirit will not illuminate and open your eyes to the things of God. But we've received the spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is from God, verse 13, or continuing verse 12, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. We've been given the spirit of God for what reason, Paul says, that we might freely understand the things given us by God. So what Paul is telling us is that if you open the word of God without the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, the Scripture takes the scales off of our eyes and removes the veil from our thinking, we will never understand Scripture and doctrine will in fact be boring to us. But Peter has this moment and we can too. And Paul continues in verse 13. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. I am grateful for my calling given by God to teach our church, to pastor our church through the teaching of his word. I feel as though God has given me a gift that I must work to develop in teaching his word. But the truth of the matter is I cannot teach God's word through human wisdom. This isn't about opinion and strategy and how to make your life better and how to have a better, better marriage and five easy steps. That's not what this is about. We impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Paul continues, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Again, information is not our problem. It's interpretation that's the problem. We have tons of information. My children know more about the world than I do or did at that age simply because they have the information. But my job as a parent is to help them interpret the information they're given. 
And as a pastor, my job is to help interpret through the Spirit what's been given. In verse 14, Paul continues and says, the natural person does not accept, does not believe or receive the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned or spiritually understood. And maybe you're like me. Maybe you've opened the Bible and you knew it's, you're supposed to do this. So you open the Bible to read it and it just feels like nothing's happening. It just feels like you're learning Newton's laws of physics again and you don't understand what this has to do with anything you actually do with your life. Even as a follower of Jesus and as a pastor, there are countless times that I'm ashamed and embarrassed to say, I open God's word to study, to teach something and never once ask the spirit to help me. I just thought I could make sense of it. That my mind is wired in such a way that I can make it make sense. But John Stott, pastor and theologian says, it's the spirit of God that leads the people of God to understand and submit to the word of God. It's the spirit of God that leads us to understand and submit to the word of God. So there's been a step missing for many of us when it comes to studying God's word. And that is that we haven't asked the spirit for help. But what changed for Peter is that he had this experience with the Holy Spirit. Everything changed for him in that moment. Now, as you read through Acts, you realize there's things are still in him. There's still the parts of him that act before he thinks and speaks before he thinks, but this is radical what's happened. And I believe this morning, the same power is true and available for each of us. No matter what your education, how ignorant and unlearned you think you are, or somebody told you when you were 13 that you're not smart enough, that you'll never understand. Maybe you have a, a mental disability or a way that you have a hard time reading or, or understanding things. Through the Spirit of God, you can understand Scripture. God would not give us His Word and then make it impossible to understand. But He has given it to us. So as Peter was transformed, by this experience, we look at the church and the early church was born out of an experience that needed an explanation. So Peter has his experience, but he has the explanation from what Jesus has taught him. And then you have this experience of everybody, everybody gathered in Jerusalem and it's chaos what's happening. People are speaking in other languages. These unlearned, ignorant, unintelligent men are now speaking in languages from around the world. And in Acts chapter 2, the people say, aren't these men Galileans? And yet they're speaking to us in our native language. It's as if we had people from other countries come into the room this morning. And the Spirit of God empowered people in such a way that we could gather them in German-speaking people, Spanish-speaking people, French-speaking people. And then one of you would just, through the Spirit, be able to speak to those people. And so we'd gather in groups and you'd speak in French and you'd speak in German and you'd speak in Spanish and we'd proclaim the same message. So this is happening with thousands of people, unsuspecting people at a, at a season of celebration called Pentecost where they're celebrating the first fruits of the harvest. And it's not the most moral and holy experience for people, but this is all happening. But can you imagine if that were to have happened, but there was no one there to explain what was happening? It demanded an explanation. And so Peter stood up and he gave the explanation. And he gave the explanation based on Old Testament prophets and the finished work of Jesus. 
And we see what happens. Back in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and of prayers. And look at verse 43. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So here's the problem with doing church the way that God has called us to do church. It never stops. Because they had this experience that leads to an explanation that now leads to more wonders and signs, more experiences happening. It creates an expansion personally for the people who are growing in their understanding. They're now in awe of what the Lord has done, and there are crazy things happening. But then verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day or daily those who were being saved. There's an experience of the Holy Spirit that leads to an explanation from the word of God and the apostles' teaching that leads to more wonders and signs being done that has to lead to more explanation in homes and gatherings, which then leads to this growth where now every day people are coming to know Jesus and are joining the church every single day. In the early 90s, or something called the church growth movement. And the church growth movement was all about making church cool for people. Because the belief was that church had become stale and boring, that we had to freshen it up to get people to come back to church. And so they did. Many churches did. My church did. And we tried to do things to get people to come to church. But the problem is, whatever you attract somebody with is what you have to keep them with. It's why single people have to be careful, careful with what profile pictures they use on social media because you don't have filters in real life. And so you've got churches who are experience-based churches. But experience-based churches, they die from exhaustion. They die without seeing the next experience. And as you chase experience without explanation, you become heretical in your teaching because what's, the experience becomes more important than the explanation. And so experience-based churches, experience-based people, we die chasing experience. And so we try to figure out what formula got us that experience. Let's do it again. But the problem with, with God is there is no formula to create an experience of the Holy Spirit. You can't. God decides when. But then explanation-based churches, they die by prideful exclusion and just simply boredom. They become elite in their thinking. And so the person who doesn't understand is not welcomed in. The person who has baggage, the person who hasn't, is open about not living right and trying to figure it all out, they aren't welcome and they die by exclusion and boredom. But the churches, the early church, the church that is committed to an ex the experience of the Holy Spirit and the explanation of the Word of God see expansion happening. Because like I said, there is no end to it. If we experience the power of God and then we're taught what just happened, which then leads to more experiences of God, it might just be the way that forgiveness happens and restoration happens and marriages are restored and, and wayward children come home and, and people are healed from their diseases. When that starts happening, we have to have an explanation, but then explanations lead us to the heart of him, which, which draws to more crazy, miraculous things happening, which demands an explanation, which means we will never run out of things to do. We'll never run out of things to teach, never run out of things to experience. This is the expansion of the early church. And it's all great and good. But if this series is about finding rest in the house of God, then how does the apostles' teaching bring rest to us? 
I would say this, that truth anchors our restless souls. We are all desperate for truth. We are restless and anxious and depressed and angry when we can't find truth. And I don't have to go too far to find an example of what happens when there's no truth to be found, but just experience that causes restlessness for us. Have you been, have you been alive and awake in the past four or five months? Plenty of things happening and no one giving us truth. And do you feel the restlessness in your soul? But there's something about truth that grounds us to reality. And this apostle's teaching is the capital T truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that grounds us in a true reality. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 11 would say, hey, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, you who are restless, and I will give you rest. I will give you peace. And he says in verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And for us as, as Western American Christians, this is great because I want to have a light load if I'm an ox carrying something. But we miss what's happening in context. So for a Jewish Hebrew rabbi, at the, when he would call a young boy at the age of 13 to follow him and follow him so closely that he would get the dust of the rabbi on him, when he would say, follow me, what he would say to him is, take my yoke upon you. The yoke for a rabbi is his interpretation and understanding of the Jewish law of the Old Testament. Every rabbi had a different yoke because they're all human trying to interpret scripture. And they had different ways of interpreting the Ten Commandments, a different way of interpreting uh, the journey of the Israelites in Egypt and then through the wilderness and into the promised land. They all had a different way of interpreting it. So much so that at some point we had, the Jews had over 600 different laws based on some rabbi's interpretation. And it continues to add to it. You could, in fact, some rabbis had laws as, as far as what you could do on the Sabbath and that um, there were certain ways you could and could not tie your sandals because of it would be work or wouldn't be work. And this is what happens when rabbis give their yoke to their disciple or to their, to their follower, their student. But Jesus says, my yoke is easy. And when we look at Jesus, when he is questioned by the scribes and they say, well, of all these laws, what is your yoke? What's the greatest? What are you gonna stand by? And Jesus says, oh, it's pretty simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. And second is like it, just love your neighbor as yourself. That's the yoke of Jesus. So for those of us this morning who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus says, you can have my yoke. You can have my yoke. So a couple questions for us this morning by means of application. And one is, are you tired or do you feel too good this morning? Are you just tired from chasing experience after experience? And sometimes church gives it to you and sometimes it doesn't and you're just trying to find the next experience. Maybe you're just exhausted from trying to find it. But many of us in the room this morning, and I would think in a church like ours, problem for many of us is that we feel elitist. We feel too good. And we've actually stopped studying the scriptures to God, and we've started to study the scriptures to know how to argue. 
one of us is led by experience and we're worn out. And one of us is led by explanation and we just feel elite and we feel too good. Another way to ask is, are you burnt out or are you bored? Matthew chapter 11, I think Jesus says this. For those of us who are leaning on experience and we're exhausted from the chase, Jesus says that he has rest for your weary soul. He offers you rest. And you find rest by taking on his understanding of Scripture. And then for those of us in the room this morning who were leaning on explanation, I love it. It's just Jesus says, come to me. Come to me and you will find rest for your souls. In John chapter five, Jesus is speaking to those who are elitists, who think that they understand something because they know more scripture than other people. But he says, the problem is you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it's they that bear witness about me, but you refuse to come to me that you might have life. So the burden that I feel on my heart this morning, and the conviction that I have is for those of us in the room this morning who have sought the scriptures for scripture's sake, but not for an experience with Jesus. It's good when you wanna debate politics and when you wanna debate abortion and debate uh, mask wearing and debate all those types of things. But when it comes to actually knowing Jesus, I wonder if we've stopped short. I just wonder if we've stopped short. The apostles' teaching is meant to point us to the finished work of Jesus, the person of Jesus. As we begin this new journey as a church and walk forward into whatever it is that God has for us, conviction of myself and Daryl and the elders is that we would be a church that's founded on the apostles' teaching, both on the shoulders of the Old Testament prophets and the finished work of Jesus on the cross. But in order to do that, we must open ourselves up to the experience of the Holy Spirit and invite him to help us understand and interpret scripture. So maybe this morning, let's just do that. Maybe for those of us this morning, as we begin this journey, it's, it's time for us to stop understanding scripture through human tradition and begin to understand it through the work of the Holy Spirit. That we would invite the Spirit to illuminate our eyes and our hearts that we would understand for those of you discouraged that scripture doesn't make sense to you and you can't seem to figure it out, I wanna point you to Peter who walked with Jesus for three and a half years and Jesus couldn't figure it out. So if you think I'm going to help you, I have bad news for you. If Jesus couldn't help Peter, I'm probably not the one to help you. Let's ask someone who can and that's the Holy Spirit of God. Because when we come to the house of the Lord and we find truth, we find rest for our weary souls. Do you bow your heads?